Hey everyone, welcome back to Mob Talk. Talia Little here and I'm with my brother boy Chris Patton. What's up you mob? So today we've got two young black fellas that volunteer for SEED, which is the Indigenous Youth Climate Network, on with us. Before we get started this morning, I would just like to acknowledge the lands that we gather across today. Myself and Talia are meeting on the Bunurong land. And I'd like to pay my respects to whichever land that you're, you are listening from today and acknowledge elders past, present, future emerging leaders. Um, and while we're here, I'd also like to give a special acknowledgement to the Jabarung people in Western Victoria who unfortunately earlier this week had a birthing tree, direction tree taken from them. These trees date back to over 800 years. The Jabarung people, some may have been following the story for quite some time, some might be new to it, but the Jabarung people have been fighting very very hard for for months and even years now to stop the destruction of um, many of the sacred birthing trees that have been used for generations and generations for um, the Jabarong women to give birth. Um, their placentas get mixed in with the trees and they then get known as direction trees and that direction tree becomes part of the child's life. So there's a lot of cultural, her- cultural significance. Um, it's being covered by some media, but it definitely hasn't garnered the attention that it should get. So this may be some inf- new information to some, but um, it is quite a sad sad week for the Jabarung people, but we'd just like to acknowledge the fight that they're doing out there. Myself and Talia have spoken a bit about this in length this week, and we've been talking about how we'd love to come up there and be involved and how the situation's just sort of not getting treated with the, um, with the right respect that we think it deserves. There was few people up to I think 50 people arrested this week in protest or what's being labeled as a protest from from what from the limited amount of information we can find online it sort of seems like they were just trying to stand their ground and stand up for something that they believe in and that their ancestors believe in for hundreds of years so um, we'll get into that a little bit later on in the podcast because I'm sure Jacoby and Jacob will have plenty to say around that as well as Talia but um, we just think it's important that we that we give a special acknowledgement to the Jabarung people and how sad it is and how how much we respect the fight that you guys are putting up up there and our best wishes to you to you mob up there. Welcome to Mob Talk with Talia and Chris. How you going, Jacoby and Jacob? How you feeling today? Yeah, good. How we living? Yeah, good, good. Um, happy to have you on. So thanks for making the time to come on Vaca's new podcast, Mob Talk. Yeah, it's good to have you guys on. So Jacob, I know you quite well, mate. We have, um, we've worked together in the past, got along with you really well. Um, Jacoby, thanks for joining us today. Um, so you guys are you guys are both work, work, working for Seed at the moment and very involved in um, climate change activism. And, and um, Jacoby, we've, we've chatted briefly and... Um, Jacob, I know you quite well. You're a very intelligent young man with um, some really ambitious goals that I think you'll um, you'll definitely reach with the path that you're on. But could you just get started and just tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days since working for Vacker and the work with Seed? And um, yeah, just just give us a bit yeah. of a rundown, brothers. Yeah, sweet. So um, yeah, obviously working with you guys from like August August 2019 to like August this year. Um, yeah, love every minute of it. Was working with the Stronger Daily program. Um, yeah, you know, work with some wonderful clients, uh, did some wonderful things. You, you were involved quite a bit, Chris, you know. Um, and yeah, you know, a lot of that was just based on trying to connect a lot of mob with culture as a way to empower them and put them on the on the good path. So, uh, and yeah, since moving on from you guys, um, yeah, it's, it's been really good. Just finishing uni and, um, you know, I'm about to start, start working again at VACA, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, and yeah, obviously just trying to, you know, upskill and, and learn a lot more about culture and, and how we can connect and, um, yeah. 
Awesome, awesome. And yourself, Jacoby, tell us, tell us quick a little bit about yourself, bros. So my, um, I'm a Gundi Jamara and Japrong man. Um, I know I, I grew up all over Victoria, mostly in Echuca in the western suburbs of uh, Melbourne, in Werribee. Um, and yeah, I was raised by my aunties for a bit of my life and then by my grandma. I grew up with my brother and two cousins who were pretty much my brothers anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my two cousins actually, you know, we're having a bit of a conversation earlier and um, my two cousins were in the group home for a while in Coburg and made a strong connection with a social worker from um, from the States. Um, and yeah, they're still pretty close to this day as well, even though that was, you know, more than a decade ago too. Yeah. Um, some of the work I do now, I work at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne. So I do a lot of um, cultural programs. I used to be a tour guide prior to COVID. So I used to take groups through. Um, I used to talk about, you know, not just sort of Aboriginal culture, but in particular, Koori's and what makes us, what makes all of us unique, how many different, you know, um, First Nation language groups there are and the diversity in each of those cultures and languages too. Um, But since COVID's hit, I do a lot of online programs now. So I'm mostly facilitating educational programs for early years and for um, sort of high schools, not so much VCE um, and doing a lot of that online. So, you know, like webinars and, um, and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, so you guys volunteer for Seed, right? Yes, yep. correct, yeah. Yeah, cool. So for all the listeners out there, could you guys explain a bit about Seed, like what it is and what you guys do? So um, Seed's the first in sort of Indigenous youth um, climate network. So its mission really is to connect all young mob together and to give them an avenue to fight for change, to fight for their futures and for country. Um, And it's all based on sort of, you know, trying to achieve climate justice. So climate justice sounds to a lot of people a bit of a weird concept. Um, And for your listeners, I guess, you probably would have heard what climate change is. So climate change is, you know, our climate is changing by the activities of our species, of humans. Um, the extraction of fossil fuels is the major, major contribution to that, but also our lifestyles as well. You know, we all live in, well, a lot of us, we all drive um, and we live daily lives and we consume lots of products. There's what, about almost 8 billion people on, yeah. on this planet I so on the earth. that's taken a lot of resources that's taken a lot of things that's added added to that whole process and climate justice is about well there is you know close to eight billion people on the earth but it's actually not all of us that are contributing towards that evenly it's actually more so the western countries and more so the the more i know privileged 
Um, they're rich and powerful that are contributing to that. So us mob here and all First Nations throughout the world, we're living with the impacts of climate change that are extremely severe on us and our lifestyles and our culture, yet we're contributing um, pretty much nothing to that process as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, that's across the board too. That's indigenous, you know, peoples globally. Um, unfortunately, the wealth gap is quite huge in Australia um, and across the globe with indigenous peoples. In fact, um, indigenous peoples in both Australia, in, well, in Australia, Canada, America, and Brazil, um, you know, make up you know the most you know the highest incarceration rates in in all of those countries in comparison to the population. Um, and yeah, also contribute to least least climate change because of you know you need the the financial resources to to access you know these resources to access energy to access electricity to access cars uh, but unfortunately you know it's our mobs and mobs globally that are the ones that don't have access to these resources or fortunately should i even say um that don't have access to these resources and therefore we're contributing the least to climate change but due to the changing climate and due to you know the changing river systems and you know in in, in heightened sea levels and you know our lifestyle is globally you know we a lot of a lot of in a lot of countries you know in finland for example they rely on, um, you know, salmon sort of makes up a lot of their livelihood and, you know, all the salmon are running out, uh, all the salmon are running out in the Natama River. So, and that's primarily due to the waterways getting, um, you know, uh, yes, particularly due to the, yeah, the waterways getting stuffed up by climate change um, and the changing weather patterns. And so it's actual our mobs that are the ones that are suffering the most, even though we're contributing the least to the problem. Mm. And that's the idea of climate justice. I think a big thing to focus on, though, is that, you know, we aren't just victims, uh, particularly us as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. We also hold the solutions to these issues as well. So um, we got extensive knowledge systems and a deep connection and understanding of this landscape in which we can, um, you know, we can solve this issue. We've, uh, we've had a lot of focus, particularly after the devastating bushfires experience the east coast we've had a lot of conversation about um cultural burns um about core burns and all of that um but like that's only one aspect of it some of the work i do at the gardens we focus on um traditional food sources um traditional plants as well and how we can use those in our agricultural systems how they're more resilient to the changes that have been experienced as well yeah, and so basically, what Seed does is, yeah, we we run campaigns uh, to try and empower these knowledge systems, empower these people, and really sort of fight, you know, the fight for climate justice. So to ensure that you know we are the ones that are making the decisions over our climate, and Indigenous peoples are being recognised and uh, being provided the sovereignty that um, you know that we need, and, and obviously the world needs to, um, you know, to, to keep an ecological balance in nature. So that's that's what Seed does. Mm. What motivated you guys to volunteer for SEED? Like, what was the starting point where you said, I'm really yeah. passionate about this, I want to be involved? Yeah, well, for me, um, I'll probably start on this. Jacoby's been involved probably a lot longer than I have, but, um, you know, I got involved in 2018 um, in a chance meeting with Jai Allen at, at Confest, funnily enough. Um, and what actually occurred is, you know, I was always involved in environmentalism at school, um, but I suffered with ADHD when I was a bit of a kid, uh, when, I, when I was a kid, and so... I found it sort of very hard to, you know, to commit and to sort of put in some of that work that's needed to be put in to make change. And in addition to that, the school that I went to really, it wasn't a great school, you know, it wasn't, you know, well-resourced, you know, a lot of people listening, you know, they might go to schools who, 
you know, you know, their their dust at the school might have scored a 99. The dust at my school was only an 86. You know, we were a very disadvantaged school, and so our environmental club, you know, wasn't wasn't resourced very well. You know, we, we just didn't have the resources to do anything, and so um, I got out of school. You know, uh, took part in a brick, bricklaying apprenticeship. You know, that's what what my dad does, and um, I sort of got to the age yeah, about 19, and sort of realised that I could. I knew there was more out there, you know, um, and more that more than what you know Frankston could sort of offer me. So, um, yeah, and then you know, you know, to my you know to my own credit, I will say that I, I did put in the hard work to find these clubs, you know, um, and to find AYCC, to find Seed, and to really try and get involved on a much larger scale because you know on the you know on the peninsula, there's a lot of you know uh, there's a lot of people that are, are aware of these issues, but you know there's not many people on a collective scale. That are making change and i just sort of felt like i wanted to be a part of that movement that was going to try and create change and um you know environmentalism and particularly just you know being in nature you know surfing skating and running growing up it's always been something i've always enjoyed and i always figured it was kind of something that could sort of mask any kind of emotional pain in some way so um, for me it was very important to try and almost yeah to find a way to sort of give back to nature and to try and promote um the well-being of our ecosystems and the well-being of nature to ensure that other people can experience um, you know, some of the greatest times in my life that I've experienced through, you know, surfing, running and doing those kinds of things. So it was a conscious effort on my behalf to sort of get involved. And I think it was a chance encounter with Jai, with our mate Jai, um, and then the, the ball started rolling from there. So, yeah. What about you, Jacoby? Um, mine was actually kind of kind of a bit random, I guess. Um, so when I was in at uni, I studied at Swingburn, and I was filling the role of um, as the um, Aboriginal representative in the student union. Um, and I was looking for an organization to help some of the students with sort of, I don't know, with sort of like health needs. And I came across SEED and I, I didn't know anything about SEED. And I mistaked it for like uh, a group that's helping, you know, young mob sort of, I don't know, that's what I thought they were. Um, and then I actually met Millie a few weeks, two weeks after that, when I went to the uh, Koori Youth Summit a few years back, and I got to talk to Millie Telford. So Millie, she started um, Seed. And I also talked to another fellow named Paul Gorey as well. Um, and then I learned a little bit about what Seed does. I learned a little bit about climate change as well. And that was the first time I ever really heard about climate change. Knew nothing about it beforehand. Um, a little bit about sort of growing up in Echuca, going back pretty much every year to camp along the river. Um, I could see that changes were happening along the waterways. But I always knew that those changes were because of Europeans. You know, they arrived, they um, polluted the rivers, turned that crystal clear water to murky mud, um, introduced carp. I knew those changes, but I never was aware about the wider sort of scale of the whole globe and how essentially Europeans are changing the climate as well. Yeah, yeah that's actually a good point that Jacoby made. I think when I got involved with Seed, I, you know, obviously knew climate change was a thing. And so, you know, it was, you know, they teach it science in year, you know, year 10 or whatever, and but wasn't, sure on how it was happening or why it was happening so like why was the climate changing who who caused it why is it why was it doing this and i think through getting involved with seed um and you know learning from a lot of other young leaders around me and a lot of you know even older leaders you know i, I learned some of the you know some of the prevailing thoughts and notions that we kind of rely on in the in the movement and i sort of yeah learned about why it was occurring and 
what some potential solutions were to stop it, which made me, you know, more inclined to stay, in, you know, stay a part of the environmental movement and try and continue the work that we do. Yep. So we've we've got cut that cut that out. <clears throat> so Jacoby and Jacob, you guys are two young Aboriginal fellows that have that have share a really strong passion around a very niche topic, I guess, being that you're Aboriginal and you're both really involved in climate change and activism. How how did you guys two kind of come together and sort of cross paths? And Jacob, I know you spoke about Jacoby going back to last year with the um with the plant and botany workshops that we were looking into getting some of the some of the young guys into. But um, just hearing you guys talk, I'm like, this is kind of cool that you guys are sort of the same age, both Aboriginal and both share such similar passions. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll probably just speak on that real quick. I think yeah, Jacoby, when I got involved with Seed, um. Yeah, there's obviously Millie, who was you know the national director, and and Jai, who's a little bit older than us, and there was a couple of other fellows that, that were involved. But I think yeah, the, Jacoby was just yeah around a similar age, similar backstory, similar name. So I think um, it just sort of occurred that we just kind of yeah, became I suppose yeah kind of kind of close on that kind of element, and you know just bounce ideas off of each other and. Yeah, just something that still continues to this day. Do you guys feel like your voices are being heard? We, we, you guys both attending university. What's it been like? On it? What's it like attending a university as you know, sort of a quote-unquote minority, and then taking this, you know, different perspective of um, we want to, we want to, we want to have the voices heard on climate change, if not just the the people that are living in regional metropolitan Melbourne that have been to private schools that are from middle upper class affluent families, but we want to, we think it's important that the the voices of you know our mob that are living regionally that um, have suffered completely different um, changes and traumas you know intergenerationally intergenerationally sorry um, yeah yeah um, I don't know thinking about my experience and my journey in in uni I sort of felt like you go to for me I when I first went to uni, sort of identifying as an Aboriginal person, I was thrown into a lot of things, you know, like I was given a lot of opportunities, but I was thrown into a lot of things I didn't quite understand. So I mentioned before I was the, you know, Indigenous student representative and I sort of got thrown into that, not quite understanding what that entailed and what sort of impact that would have on me as well. Um, and I think that happens a lot in unis too. You know, I didn't really realize that at the time, but in Swingburn in particular, um, I was there for a few years and, you know, it's a, it's a university with, I think I had 12 or 14,000 students and I only had about 63 or 64 indigenous students on campus. So... You know, you, at least for me, in my experience, I felt really isolated, felt really alone in that way too. And I felt kind of pressured to do things and to sort of represent when, yeah, I'm not too sure if that makes too much sense. Yeah. It, does. Yeah. it does. Like yeah. you, you were kind of getting hit with this huge responsibility to be a voice for the, you know, the, the, the Aboriginal student body. And it's like, Am I the right person? What does this job entail? Is this something that the university's come to me with? Well, you know, we need we need sort of a person in this area, in this area, and you know, we've got they all have they all have boxes they need to tick. It's kind of like, um, is this genuine? Am I affecting real exactly, change, yeah. or are they just do they just kind of want a black fella in to um, sort of tick their box? 
Yeah, mm. I, might, um, I might speak on that, Chris, and ask you a question, actually, because, um, yeah, something I've obviously found fascinating about you is that you actually played, um, you know, basketball over in America and went yeah. to college for it. So I'll probably ask you something about that in a second. But, um, yeah, my experiences with uni are kind of interesting because I went to a private school for a year in year seven. Uh, I was on a football athletic scholarship, but um, realized that I was only the only um, the, the only other this was around the time that I found out that I was Indigenous as well, and that the only other Aboriginal people there were um, on there on scholarships, sporting scholarships, and academic scholarships even, and sort of realized that there was a bit of a difference in um, you know in in socioeconomic status between a lot of Indigenous people and a lot of non-Indigenous people. Um, you know, St. Bede's is a school where it's, you know, quite, um, you know, quite an expensive private school and definitely my parents couldn't afford for me to, they couldn't have paid for me to go there, but I was fortunate enough that I had sport and I could rely on that. But, um, yeah, I got to, yeah, I got to the end of year seven and just kind of got a bit disenfranchised with it a bit, I guess, because I noticed that the, the, the other Indigenous kids there, you know, they were all, you know, great footballs or, or you know, great in the academic setting, but, you know, they were only there on scholarships and, and um, it felt a little bit weird for me because, you know, as a, as a, you know, I suppose it's being light-skinned and as a black fella, it was just kind of, um, I found that kind of hard and just kind of, I was kind of, I was very upset by it because I was like, you know, here's this great education that, you know, we, we've got access to, but not not many Indigenous people actually get access to this. And so when I went to university, um, you know, I, I've said in this piece that, you know, it's, it's only like 0.8% of the, the university population is Indigenous and, it's it's quite it's quite upsetting to be honest because like that's dictated by so many other structural socioeconomic factors. So it's dictated by the school that you go to. As I said, you know, um, my 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 high school that I ended up going to, McClellan College, did actually have a quite a high Indigenous um, you know rate, you know student rate. Um, you know, it's a low socioeconomic area, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of uh, you know, Indigenous people went there. And um, that when you go to schools like that, that, that can sort of dictate someone's path. So for example, as I said to you before off air, that the ducks of our school was an 86, right? Whereas the ducks at St. Bede's was a 99. And it was like 60% of the cohort, the year 12 cohort at St. Bede, at St. Bede's actually went to university in the year that I graduated. Whereas at my school, only five people out of 50 went to university. And I wasn't one of them at the time. And so a lot of these structural factors prevent indigenous people from sort of moving forward and then so when i've sort of been um you know at universities i've kind of almost had the luxury of being light skinned because like i often kind of find myself in a juxtaposition where if people ask about aboriginal or i know that when i met jacoby he recognized me instantly as aboriginal i'll, I'll acknowledge it but sometimes i do kind of feel a bit like it's not my place you know because i've kind of had an upbringing where i have sometimes been shielded from some of those realities um but yeah the truth of the matter is that yeah indigenous people are are constantly being prevented due to a lot of these structural factors from pushing forward. And so when we engage in, you know, the environmental environment, it's it's very hard for us because most Indigenous people don't even live in metropolitan areas, which is where a lot of these environmental organisations are based. So there's no, logistically, there's no access to the environmental organisations like that. And then the second thing we've got to consider is the people in these environmental organisations are predominantly, you know, predominantly privileged, predominantly private school educated. You know, they're the next, they're the change makers of the next generation. So they're very educated. They've got, you know, great backgrounds. And so that prevents a lot of Indigenous people from getting involved as it is because of their, because of that almost like that insecurity of being Indigenous and, and maybe not having that background. You know, my, my, my mum and dad have five siblings each, right? So they're, so the two of them have five siblings each. Only my mum has gone to university out of that side of the family and her side of the family. That's one in, you know, one in 10. So um, 
being sort of yeah working you know i suppose quote unquote working class and and also adding to the fact that i'm indigenous it's it's very hard to sort of make your way um from that kind of a background and i think something i'd like to ask you chris is you know as an indigenous person yourself like when you went to college to play basketball how did you find that experience of being indigenous you know an indigenous australian and when you went to university and when you went to college did you at that time did you acknowledge the fact that you're indigenous and and what did your cohort or what did your all your teammates think of you know indigenous australians what was their what was their perception should i say yeah so i know i really never had any business being in university to start with right i got told and i got told i got i got sort of an opportunity to go for a basketball scholarship and that was um that was all i needed to go from um i was studying vcal at the time and then i moved into vce with not a goal to go to university to study but to go to go go to university to play basketball right and when I got there, um, I ended up going to the University of California, Riverside. And turns out most of my teammates were thinking the exact same thing as me, right? They were black and they were there because they want to play basketball, not because they're trying to get a degree. It's, um, it wasn't until sort of my third or fourth year that you sort of started thinking about the degree. But um, I sort of fit in. I fit in pretty well, to be to be honest, mate. Like um, most of my teammates were black. They were African-American. They come from low social socioeconomic, um, you know, uh, cities, towns. Um, you want in in the first. I think my first week, the first university I went to was was College of Southern Idaho, and I got um, I became friends with a teammate who I still keep in touch with in touch with this day, and I speak about this guy quite a bit. But he's from Chicago, and about a month earlier, prior to him coming to university um, and being there, his brother and cousin were both shot and killed, um, and it was almost I almost couldn't process and believe the story until. It was pretty soon after that local newspapers started doing stories on his family um, and him coming out to Idaho and trying to get away from the violence that was in Chicago. Um, so I sort of felt like I shared obviously nowhere near to that, that, that level, but I had teammates from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, from San Francisco, from the Bronx. You know, I had a teammate from a place called Rochester, New York, um, which is um, pretty sort of ghetto, and um, you know they've they've got they've it's it's real cool. They each each city has their own different personalities, um, their own slang, their own accents. You know, someone from Louisiana is going to sound different. Someone from Atlanta. I had a teammate. We called him ATL. We had we had a lot of teammates that were just called by whatever city they were from. Um, but there was definitely one thing that we all shared in common um, was that you know we were a minority at the school. Um, and most of us were there because of our athletic opportunities, not because of our academic opportunities. Um, so when I was when I was at university, I definitely noticed that you know the basketball team and certain teams in particular, you know, not not, not to stereotype it, it's just facts. But you know, the basketball team, the the track teams, the football teams, you know, they're going to be mostly black athletes. That and there's a lot of stuff going on in America that right now talking about you know um, college sports and. Um, athletes not getting paid and um, that the predominantly are they predominantly are african-american athletes that don't go on to play professionally the universities profit hundreds of millions of dollars off these athletes each year and then um, you know the 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 athlete the student athletes are left to go back to wherever they're wherever they're from and sometimes you know from my experiences they were they were pretty rough circumstances but um, it really sort of um, seeing that firsthand it was real it was a real reflection of the same things that we've got going on in australia 
Um, just so you know, the, if you look at the if you look at the trauma that African American have been people have been through from when they were brought over from Africa and the slavery and um, you know the, how that's been passed down from generation to generation. I mean, it's a little bit different with um, the, the story of Australia being colonized, but there's certainly a lot of similarities to it. Mm. Um, and for some, I, I definitely felt with my teammates over there that um, I did bond and sort of form this brotherhood of. Um, you know, I spoke to them about my Aboriginality and what that meant and um, tried to educate them a little bit on Australia's true history um, and Aboriginal people. And for most of the time, that was the first time that they'd ever that they'd ever heard of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders or even Australia being colonised and um, how that actually went down. Um, and, you know, I got, I got to sort of refer to at times as, you know, a white guy or, or a white boy, you know, just the color, the, kind of the colour yeah, of my yeah. skin tone. But um, that, was sort of a, that was sort of an interesting kind of like, you know, and that's, and I'm sure you, you know, like you've kind of mentioned some of that in, um, in that part, in that piece that you wrote for uh, By Beat and Ablaze, but sometimes you sort of feel like, if I identify with my Swedish or, you know, for yourself, Swedish or Italian background or for myself, if I, if I identify as my, you know, English or Irish background, people are going to accept it so much more. But if you identify as with your yeah. Aboriginal background or being a black fella, it's kind of like, whoa, you know, but it was, it was interesting. It was interesting, mate. Like they, they, I remember one of my teammates, um, I forget what we were talking about having a laugh, but one of my, t- what a couple of my teammates used to say, um, they, they could, they'd call me by my initials. They'd be like, CP ain't, CP ain't white, he Australian. Um, <laughs> and then I was kind of like, well, thanks, but you know, I'm Aboriginal, you know, so white, like Australians are white. So then it was kind of like this whole more, more sort of like teachings, but the, the difference in races and, and classes and the social, the, so the systemic racisms that we've kind of yep. like touched on today and um, the well, disparity in attendance rates between... Let's hold that for a second because um, that sort of brings us back to this, the original point that we're trying to make is that, so you obviously went over there you uh, with a lot of black fellows, African-Americans in the basketball teams and the football teams, I'm sure. And so just say, um, you know, and I, got, I got friends that go to colleges in, in America um, for, you know, for academic and sporting reasons. And, um, there's definitely, you know, environmental groups, there's political groups, as there is in Australian universities that you can be a part of um, and that sort of thing. Do you feel that as a Aboriginal man and that your, you know, your teammates, would you feel that if, would you feel like you could be a part of one of these political, you know, one of these political groups at university or do you feel like they were kind of dominated by that kind of, you know, white privileged academic bunch? And like, and so I suppose, yeah, so, so as an Aboriginal person, like, do you feel like you would have felt almost like excluded in that kind of way that, you know, you didn't really have that background that they might have had in that setting, but in the sports setting, you would have felt, you know, that was your element. So like, can you just maybe speak a bit on how that probably could have occurred, you know, if you would have maybe felt excluded in that kind of setting? Because that sort of touches on the point that we're trying to make, you know, about the environment, that I'm trying to make about the environmental movement, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think so for specifically my teammates, right? Climate change isn't the number one isn't the number one need for them isn't the number one need affecting them right you you know we sort of watch the news we see what's going on there's a lot of there's a lot happening in America right now there's there's you know every city's uh, there's a riot there's a protest in every city you look at you know you, you particularly look at the, the the black communities over there um, 
you know, I can if I can just sort of say, you know, cities like Chicago or cities like Wisconsin, um, Detroit, Philadelphia, Baltimore. There's some. There's a lot of. There's a lot of cities over there that we just that that the size that we don't have in of the size of cities we don't have in Australia that are just so underclass that you just shake your head and you think, why is there not more attention being brought to these these areas? But those areas being places that you know my teammates, African Americans, mostly being from. How's their how's their most important need supposed to be climate change when they've got yep. guns being shot at them every day? Yeah, no, exactly right, exactly right. I think in the um, in the piece, you know, yeah, I said we've kind of talked about, and you've kind of read, is that the point that I'm trying to kind of make is, you know, it's so hard for for some Indigenous young people to you know to almost have their voices heard in the environmental movement because it is so dominated by you know by the educated by the privileged that it's almost like the way that you know, young people, young, young just people like act towards each other. If that was to be presented in in, in an environmental circle, you know, we we, you know, we run the risk of getting outed. You know, we run the risk of you know he said this, and by the by the way that um a lot of you know you know white people who are trying to do the right thing, mind you, by being in the environmental movement, but by enforcing their linguistic ideals on people, on especially on indigenous people, it almost feels like personally, it almost feels like um, we're still getting treated as the underclass because it's an unconscious bias that. That they have and i'll quickly just give an anecdote before we move on is that you know i was at a climate justice workshop um two years ago and i sort of raised the idea about how i'd you know seen two girls you know friends who were girls of mine get stabbed in in frankston by by three guys and a lot of my you know a lot of my fellow volunteers who were part of that privileged group looked on in kind of shock horror yeah. and yeah the thing is they don't a lot of the time they maybe realize that that's the sheer reality and the nature of some communities and that's why a lot of the time young indigenous people kind of feel a bit too nervy and almost scared to sort of engage because they they know that they're different in that way and is it is it is it because that is it because that there's so many other things that they want to address before they get to you know that that they've got they've got they've got they, they, they might be having issues at home they might be having you know issues with quote-unquote friends or other social groups that are leading to these sorts of you know violent attacks in public um mental yeah. health problems like is there is it is it do you think it's because there's so many more immediate needs that need to be covered that social that, that things like getting yeah. involved with even if it even if it's a social you know a climate change group or if it's just yeah. another social activist group that might have different names but i guess we're probably underrepresented in just about you know all of these all of these groups yeah and is it because where we've, there's more immediate needs that we feel like we need to tend to or well well definitely i think even jacoby could speak to this um in a second you know just due to his upbringing but there is definitely needs in indigenous communities that are being met and there needs to be more support and there needs to be more resources that are going into them um but it is very difficult for young indigenous people because all it's it's crazy how you know a lot of my clients even at vaca they've got so much knowledge about you know their about their heritage and about you know the ecological systems that dominate their landscape and it's so incredible like amazing stuff like i've never i've never sort of encountered anything like it in any kind of you know academic circle that i've been in and these it's these these stories these anecdotes and these these lines of storytelling that need to be told in the on the biggest stage for for, for the need of climate change to be addressed but it is so hard to address that when there, there is there, there is these issues going on in indigenous communities of emotional well-being of, of violence and, and of drug and alcohol abuse so it yeah it just makes it very hard for for, for these things to sort of be brought to light in the you know in, in that kind of setting i'm sure jacoby can almost mm. attest to that i probably i want to just take a sec too to i know acknowledge and thank you chris for sharing your story um 
I think you've, you know, the viewers of this podcast, um, maybe they hear it in the voice. I can see it in the camera too. It seemed like a, you know, really emotional retelling. Um, and one thing I was thinking about actually too is a journey I went through, a journey my brothers are going through right now is feeling like you're alone. Like no one else is going through what you're going through. You're just going through this by yourself. And the realization that, you know, your you know, for you, your brothers, those fellows you played with on that team are along that journey with you. Their own journeys, but similar experiences. Um that's something I probably realized a bit later on in life, maybe too late. And that's something I've tried to help my brothers realize as well, the ones I grew up with. Um, the school I went to in Werribee actually was pretty renowned for its violence. It actually had to change its name. It used to be called Galvin Park. And it was quite well known actually for um, fights, kids getting stabbed during lunchtime. My friend Omar, actually, I remember one time... Um, some white fella said something about him and his brother jumped the gate to actually, you know, stab him, um, ran around the whole school looking for him. It was a pretty, it was a pretty intense school. Um, and, like, these are the experiences, I guess, that for me and Jacob and probably you guys as well, you become so numb to. You get used to it. To us, it's, you know, it's another day. Um, it forges us into people that are really strong and resilient because we go through these, these, you know, these sort of situations. But to other people, particularly, yeah, people I've experienced in the climate movement who probably come from, yeah, more wealthy, more, you know, prestigious backgrounds and haven't gone through those, it's, it's a shock horror. Um, and, you know, Jacob would probably attest to this, but I'm I'm a very reserved person. I don't share anything about, you know, um, how I was raised, what I went through. Not not until I trust someone, or until there's until I know that there's a common link between us. Because I just don't take that risk. You know, I don't yeah. take that risk with non-indigenous people because they're not going to understand. I'm not going to yeah, get anything yeah. out of it, and that's a lot of pain and pressure on me to bridge the gap in understanding as well. Yeah, I feel you, Jacoby. Um, I'm also from – well, I'm, I grew up in the Northern Territory, um, so I've seen and been around the block a little bit. But coming and living in the Mornington Peninsula, I've got a lot of white friends who do not – understand what aboriginal people went through in the slightest so more so than often it's like oh, i'd rather just not go through this conversation because you're going to probably come out of this with a laugh and i'm going to probably come out of this with a lot of pain and hurt so i feel your brother there um and with seed like this is this is what we need to advocate for we need to advocate for more programs that are aboriginal driven and uh, led by Aboriginal people because it allows young people to voice their opinion in a safe space where it's not like oh you don't really know what you're talking about or I've got a university degree and you don't it's no like we're passionate and we're Aboriginal and we need opportunities like this for young people to be able to voice that so it's really awesome that there is a program like SEED but for me 
this through you, Jacob, actually, is the first place I heard about seed. You know, I'm I'm 20, I'm Aboriginal, I'm on the Mornington Peninsula. I didn't even know there was an Indigenous climate network. You know, it's we need to get more programs like this out and about because a lot of Aboriginal people have a passion for this kind of stuff because we do yeah. care for country, you know. And we, and we see it every day as well. Yeah. You know, we see the changes that are occurring. Even for us mob that live in cities, you know, we see the changes that are occurring each day. And for mob that are, um, for community, they're more sort of, they're more affected. You know, they're more affected. They know exactly what is changing. Um, and sometimes they can't describe or they can't comprehend what causes that change. And sometimes that's why climate change is a hard thing. But, yeah, you're right in saying SEED is an amazing, amazing organization because you don't feel alone. You don't feel isolated. And, you know, there is, yeah, there is mob there that just understand you, understand your experience um and know the context so for people for people listening out there that where climate change is something that they might not have heard a whole lot about right both aboriginal and non-aboriginal listeners how would you what, what, what would you say and jacob i know you do i know you do a lot of speeches and public speaking right um and campaigns and, that, and those things as such what would you say to listen listeners out there that climate change isn't a number one isn't a number one priority for them or they're sort of they're sort of like climate change is something that we you know the next that that you know my grandkids grandkids will have to worry about yeah uh, um well yeah look i mean climate change has to be number one you know and and the reason for that is because we're sort of on the brink of a complete species decline we're right? like we're on the on the on the brink of a um of an extension of even the human species you know saying that at the current rate of um of greenhouse gas emissions by 2100 sea levels are going to be risen by uh, almost a meter and that's going to devastate a lot of the, our cultural landscapes a lot of like the low-lying lands um you know in, in australia and it's, it's, it's yeah it's just going to devastate um you know storylines it's going to devastate um yeah the environment and it's it that's that's the thing that, that forces the decline of the species which is like the, the decline of the food chain which is what we, we kind of rely on to survive and not only that, but the, just also the the loss of culture and biodiversity. Like, for example, um, if, if, if you're in, the, the attempt, they're trying to frack the Beetaloo Basin at the moment in the EMT, and what what that's going to do is it's basically going to um, take away a lot of the culture from that place. And Indigenous peoples, you know, our our livelihood now, you know, almost like our um, contentment and happiness and, and and the apple of our eyes, sort of based off our culture and based off what we know and learning about our environment, but with climate change, you know, so readily occurring now and with not enough um, attention to it at the moment, it runs the risk of absolutely just abolishing um, these storylines and these places of significance that really underpin Indigenous history in not just Australia but globally as well. Mm. You know, one thing too um, I'm thinking about as well, there was an – so with the Bitaloo Basin being fracked, that's done by Origin Energy. So Origin's a company you can buy your electricity and your gas from. And they just had a um, a general annual meeting. So big fancy meeting, all the shareholders come and talk to, you know, the executives, voice their concerns. Anyway, at this meeting, the CEO dictates pretty much um, there was mob there representing their communities, mob from that land and representing their concerns and expressing that. And you have the CEO there saying that they're not traditional owners of that land, that they don't represent it, that they have no stake. 
And another thing we had recently is I was watching Dan Andrews given um, question for the coronavirus thing. They're talking about the Japaron camp, oh, and oh. he's saying, you know, we've talked to traditional owners for that area. Um, they've given their import, and one of the journalists asked, you know, how do you determine who's a representative of that that area, who is a traditional owner? And they use a lot of these things, you know, oh, we have a framework that's in place that decides who's identified. And, you know, what's happened on Jackron country is um, devastating. And the process that led to that is, um, is essentially that a mob that has no claim or connection to that in terms of the Eastern Mar group were pretty much con- consulted on that and, and essentially allowed what's happened to happen, you know. And this is what happens too. This is what the government does, what whitefellas do, is they divide and conquer. They choose who represents where and who speaks for what. And if it's someone that doesn't align with their perspective or what, what they want, then, you know, they're not traditional owners. They don't represent the country. I heard a, I've heard a lot of similar stories uh, to what you've just been saying, Jacoby. And actually, one of my one of my friends who works for I don't want to say who because I don't want to um, I don't want to kill any future job prospects um, on this podcast. But uh, there's um, I've heard similar stories about mainstream organisations, and um, I don't know how much I want to say, but even local government organisations having indigenous um, identified positions, but having having non-indigenous managers and the co- the conflict that that can cause between you know in a program and especially at the you know the government level, sort of a an, an Aboriginal person being asked to make decisions on what he thinks they best for best for that area or best for their mob, best for their country, and you've got you know, kind of like you said, micromanaged by a white person that's, you know, creating this sort of divide or, you know, having their own agenda of where they think our community's best interests are. Do you think that nowadays white people or the government as such has started to look more towards the traditional owners to heal these lands through traditional ways? I mean, my nana, for example, knows everything and anything about country up in Northern Territory, right? Do you think if we consulted more elders like this that we would have more of a change? Yeah, definitely. I think – so one thing I'm thinking about too, and um, Victoria and and Delp in particular have started um, this sort of like the development of this policy called the traditional owners' um, land management framework, and essentially it's the consultation consultation and involvement of traditional owners in the caring for for you know country for land um and it's also the incorporation of you know of cultural burning as well and not only sort of you know um appropriating that knowledge and and that practice because if a government organization and non-indigenous people are going to do it then it's appropriation um, but giving land back to Aboriginal people for them to manage and to heal. And that's the most important thing is, you know, the government can do all they want to do to try and fix something, but ultimately they're the cause. And the solution is handing land and management back to us so that we can get the work done. 
And we know exactly how to do that. We've done it for thousands of years. It's all about incorporating that knowledge and that practice um, to do it. Yeah, it's quite fitting too. Like um, I recently actually did, a, did an essay on this and, um, you know, I found out that five, so Indigenous people take care of 5% of the overall total land in the world, but they take care of six, there's, they take care of 68% of the biodiversity, which is just ridiculous numbers if you think about it. If you think so of it's biodiversity quickly, bro? Uh, so biodiversity is basically like the like the, it, how ecosystems interact and the uh, the number of species, different species within the ecosystems in a rainforest within a um, aquacultural ecosystem. It's basically just like animals, plants, and all living things within a space. That's biodiversity. And um, yeah, and so so yeah. So back to the point is, indigenous people take care of five percent of the the lands globally, but yet they. Um, promotes sixty eight percent of the global biodiversity. So if you think about, um, you know, the Great Barrier, uh, if you think about like the Great Barrier Reef or, or the Amazon rainforest, the Amazon rainforest is huge in biodiversity, and it's protected by indigenous peoples. But then once you get to you know agricultural lands like in the centre of Australia, which aren't protected by indigenous peoples, that's when the biodiversity stops because of deforestation, land destruction, which is where. Um, you know, the, the government sort of take over and they take ownership of the land and that decreases the biodiversity and decreases the environmental limits and our threshold of what we actually can offer. So, mm. um, yeah, so, so it's proven that Indigenous people, you know, we have the capability to take care of the land because is what we've been doing for 80,000 years. Yeah. And what Dwell does is they're trying to promote that, um, you know, they're finally taking steps to try and promote that biodiversity gain. It's a hard thing too. With what Jacob's saying, like, our mere presence on that land protects it. You know, you got mob in the Amazon who lived there. So that means companies, if they came in and removed or, you know, um, you know, did something a lot worse than that, then there would be outrage. But if no one lived there, they would be free to go in and remove all of the, all of the resources, all of the trees there. That's the exact same thing wherever you are in the world. People... They protect that land, just their presence being there. And that's probably the most powerful thing about us, Mob2. we got such a strong connection to the land at which we come that we cannot leave it. And so in that way, we protect it. Um, yeah. Another thing I was going to say too is like, as good as, as DELP is, is at the moment and what they're doing with um, traditional owner groups, you know, it's, it's a little bit sad. And for myself, I work for a state government organization. It's a little bit sad to be a part of those processes, knowing what is happening on Japron country and, and what the state government is doing too. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and, and like it's like you said earlier as well about consulting with the um consulting with the with the you know traditional landowners and stuff. I I jumped in the car this morning, and um it was Triple J was on, and they were actually talking about the the um the destruction of the direction trees. Right, I was like, wow, interesting, interesting convert to jump in the middle of you know uh, most most uh, morning radio. Um, can be pretty uh, can be pretty sort of mind numbing, but it was like it was actually a, it was actually an interesting conversation to just get thrown into the middle of early in the morning. But they were kind of saying what you were saying earlier that they've consulted with the local landowners that um, they've determined that these aren't in fact sacred trees and they only date back a certain amount of years. And um, um, they were saying that I forgot I forget who the local land council was or um, who they consulted with that quote unquote gave the blessing for these trees to be taken down. But it's like you were saying, like 
the job were on the traditional owners they're saying something completely different they know they've been they've been on those lands for for you know tens of thousands of years eighty thousand years and you know you're kind of being kind of being told that no these aren't sacred we've consulted with the traditional owners we've consulted we've, we've consulted with the people from the land and you're seeing you're seeing that you, you know you're seeing up there you know people getting arrested for refusing to leave it's like you said just literally them being there their presence i think the trees were supposed to be were supposed to be um taken down as early as late 2019 and it's been dragged out for such a long time because literally just the presence of people and their, their connection to the country it has was nearly three years ago yeah something yeah. like that yeah it was a crazy amount of time wow so yeah they've, they've done an unbelievable job on getting to th- getting all the way to here and they've just they've just put in like a three-week blockade for more 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 construction of the trees so i don't know what's going to happen over the next three weeks also also just acknowledging too that three years of being out there on country and and stopping all of that is a massive massive sacrifice to your life your career everything like that relationships um so i think that that should be acknowledged as well that's yeah for sure yep the other day i actually woke up and i was in a really good mood um I was at my friend's house and I was just having a good day and I looked at my phone and my friend had tagged me in the post saying the directions tree had been cut down and honestly I've been following this for a while now and my heart sunk and I was reading a post of a lady who was there and she was laying on the ground sobbing you know connecting with mother earth just crying of how devastating this must be and it it hurt it actually you know, as an Aboriginal person, it hurts your heart because you understand how strong that connection would be to that land as a Jabberong person. You know, me to my, my country where I'm from, things that happen there every time something happens, I it it's like a pain that you feel that goes through your whole body. It's extreme. So I can't even begin to imagine what their mob must be feeling, you know, and I wouldn't even be surprised you know, this is a bit conspiracy thing, but I wouldn't even be surprised if restrictions got dragged out so people couldn't go up there and support because I know that on November 8th, if we can, I will be up there. Like, yeah, for sure, yeah. I will be up there. You know, me, Beck, and a friend, Chelsea, all Aboriginal, we're, we're up there. So I wouldn't be surprised if restrictions weren't, li- like, weren't allowed to be done there. But, you know, in a positive light, it's awesome that we have programs out there like seed for aboriginal people and i know i actually was um researching seed last night and i i joined up in some way but you know through you guys i actually want to become a part of it so like what how do you become a part of seed so the best way to be involved initially is to visit the website um to fill out a pledge form or an application form to volunteer so that seed have your details and they can get in contact with you also following seed on social media means that you're going to stay in the loop when there's an event or um, a campaign happening then you can be directly involved and in our current circumstances of covid a lot of that is going to be online going to be digital so quite accessible if you got a device, you know, if you've got the means to do that. Hopefully when we come back to a bit of normality post-COVID, um, a bit more accessible that you can be there in person workshops, and you can show your support. Um, yeah. You know, that's what a lot of industry do is we do a lot of facilitation of these workshops and how to create changing communities. And, um, you know, last year we had a big camp, which was amazing. We then stri- uh, had a strike out the front of Origin office. And so... This is a, a really good opportunity for even young people, you know, like, you know, clients of ours, Chris, that 
you know, that they might be searching for that thing that, you know, they can get involved in environmentalism in an Indigenous friendly space, which would also empower them to, you know, always take control of some of their own opportunities you know, through education and, and, and through work. So I would definitely recommend young Indigenous people, um, you know, to, to sort of join up because there's a lot of skills that you can sort of build, a lot of capacities that um, you can gain through the movement that will allow you to sort of transfer it to other walks of life. You know, I'm studying, I'm in my last year of public health at the moment, and um, there's a lot of this stuff that I've learned, see, through capacity building and community development, which I'll take over to my career, you know, so. Mm. So if you just look up SeedMob, you can Google it. It's seedmob.org.au. Um, and that's how you can sort of find out a little bit about Seed and you can um, you can join up there too. Yeah, I joined up last night. I think I did it. Um, but I was going to ask you guys today. I've been inspired to kind of uh, get involved, yes. especially because of all the stuff happening on Dejabaron country. It's kind of um, lit a spark in me, I guess you'd say. Um, what's I, was fo- I follow your Instagram page and I was looking at a post so about the fracking in the NT. So it says the gover- the Ghana government has betrayed Territorians by allowing fracking fracking companies to poison our water, land and climate. Is this lying to the Aboriginal people? Like what is your perspective on this? Because I'm actually related to the Gunners, which is funny because I'm related to um, everyone. Pretty much, yeah. The the whites of Alice Springs and the blackies of Alice Springs. So it's kind of interesting to see both my Aboriginal side and the white side. Um, Yeah, what's your point of view on this? I mean, how aware are we about, you know, what are the impacts of of fracking? And I think a a big thing I was thinking about too, I assume assume you're talking about my Instagram um, and... Oh, oh seed, seed mob Instagram, yeah. Seed mob so, Instagram. Yeah, one thing about thinking about the NT, yeah, is how interconnected all, you know, like mob there are so reliant on um, on groundwater, uh, on aquifers, and all of that is interconnected. Um, and what are the impacts when you're fracking? You know, the process of fracking involves that you drill deep down into the earth, like three, four Ks, you drill horizontally and then you pump in under massive pressure, a sludge of chemicals and sand and water. You, you literally fracture the earth so that it can create little cracks, save all of the gas and oil, and then they suck that back up. And what do they do with all of the leftover chemicals, the water and the sand? They leave it in big ponds there. Um, so, like, you're up from that way. You know, when the wet season comes along, that's a big risk. All mm. of that will flood out, yep. go over the land into the waterways, eventually make its way um, into those water sources. And all of these mining companies, you know, they don't have a good track record. Every single one of them essentially has made massive mistakes. So what if they frack somewhere and all of that material leaks into the water basin? Then that's there for thousands of years. They say that it takes like tens of thousands of years for the water to circulate through that system. So, you know, this impact isn't just on us mob, isn't just on mob in the NT. It's on um, non-Indigenous people who, yeah, non-indigenous people too who live there yeah 
Yeah, it's all around. It's all around the world. I know. Um, I know. I've just been following a little bit about the election in America, and fracking is a huge thing that um, they're debating on at the moment. Um, it's interesting to sort of hear uh, you break it down like that, and sort of, uh, you know, it gives you a picture of Jesus is going on. You know, in the Northern Territory, all around the world. What? Yeah. What are we doing to our planet in the long run? Mm. What's your advice for getting young people involved? What would you say to the average, or not the average, we'll just say young Aboriginal person wanting to get into climate change? What's the first step? Well, I think that um, it's just important to point out that the environment affects everyone and everything, right? So um, there's a quote by Gandhi that actually says, um, actually, sorry, I won't remember, I've actually forgotten it at the moment, but um, yeah. <laughs> Shame job. <laughs> you don't really know it, Jacob. Don't lie. No, I do. That's it. Um, but yeah, no, what I'd say is that yeah, we we, we rely on our environment, right? Um, you know, the environment to you know, the environment presents us with food, with water, everything that we need to survive. And at the moment, at this current rate, we're destroying the environment, and that means the destruction of um, you know, our food sources, our water sources. And it's important to say that to Indigenous young people that it also destroys our culture as well, and our songlines, our storylines. And without that, you know, we're we're you know we're strong. We're you know we're strong fighters, but without that, it's it's very hard to go on. And so what I would say is that um, you know consider what's happening around you. Consider what's happening in your communities. Consider how you know your folks and your cousins, your brothers are reacting to what's going on. And 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 you can make change. There's always a way that you can make change. And by getting involved with seed and by recognizing that there's a bigger um, you know that there's there's more than what is just immediately accessible to you. Is how you know is how you can get involved, and it is how you can you know how you can um, you know become that pillar of progression to a more sustainable society. You know, mm. I mean, no matter who your mob is, and you know, we're all descendants of warriors, and it's our turn now to take up that mantle to protect country. You know, it's our generation that essentially have the responsibility ability to protect this land and to keep it safe for the generations to come as well that's something that really motivates me is the thought that what i have now what i grew up with and that perspective i've got from you know from the land from being out there with my uncles my grandma especially and um and learning what i learned i want that for my children i want that for my brother's children and um all my cousins everyone yeah, so this quote, I, I did find it. Thank you very much, Talia. Uh, okay, but it okay. is that Earth provides enough to satisfy every man's needs, but not every man's greeds. Currently, you know, we're, we are quite greedy. We're, um, yeah, we're ex- exploiting the Earth's resources and it's, it's really up to us to try and undo the damage that we've done because um, there needs to be that ecological balance in order to keep a, a society that um, that is balanced through our respect for nature and our ability to... Yeah, utilize our food systems to you know to to satisfy our needs, but we can't overdo it. And currently, we are overdoing it. Thanks, guys, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's been awesome talking to you. I've learned heaps. I'm sure Chris has learned heaps. Mm-hmm. Um, for viewers out there, if you want to get involved in Seed, join online or follow the Instagram page Seed Mob. Seedmob.org.au. There you go, Chris. Thanks for thanks for that got my back um yeah thanks jacoby and thanks jacob for coming on we really appreciate it yes yeah, so i'll definitely see you guys in the future at some point yeah for sure um might see you at something involving seed after yes, i join <laughs> hey, hey, all back up yes all right 
Hope you all have a good week. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next Mob Talk. Mm-hmm.